Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we infuse weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Amy Bullen. On this edition, we'll feature Almost Extinct Animals with Chris Rayberg and Lucid Dreaming with Amy Bullen. But first up, here's the news with Ian Wolfe. Swiss company Terranet has launched mobile phones in Tanzania and Ecuador that may offer free local calls in remote areas. Remote areas often don't have phone base stations. The phones can talk peer-to-peer to other Terranet mobile phones and are able to route calls from one phone to another using all the phones in between as a path. It's a wireless, meshing, routing phone. When you switch a Terranet phone on, it looks for other phones in range and then connects to them and extends the network. When a number is dialed, the phone checks the local network to see if the phone dialed is in range. If it is, it connects the call. While the range on each phone is only a kilometre, any phone in between two others can forward calls, allowing the distance used to double. Thus a local network is set up, independent of the commercial networks, that allows poor people to make local calls for free. The system can also be used to make calls to other Terranet mesh networks, using net-connected PCs fitted with an inexpensive USB dongle. While Terranet phones only work with a special handset at the present, Terranet hope that eventually it'll be a feature available on all phones, like Bluetooth. Of course, when this happens, it could spell the end for the current Global System for Mobile Communications, GSM, which is about 70% of all mobile phones in the world. Peer-to-peer phones have been criticised for giving phone calls away for free, After all, what kind of business model is that? Well, it's a business model of selling people phones with the features they want that your opposition don't offer. This technology doesn't just have uses in helping poor people in remote areas of the world. It can be applied immediately in the world's cities. Everyone will want a phone that gives them free phone calls, even if it's just an option in addition to your regular network provider. The network companies might not like the competition, but they don't control the manufacture of phones. The public want it, it's technologically cheap to offer, so it should arrive on your mobile phone in a very few years. Mobile phone manufacturer Ericsson has invested several millions of dollars in Terranet, showing that some companies get the business model of giving customers what they want. There is now an X prize for Test Tube Chicken. That's right, Test Tube Chicken. Peter, the extremist American animal rights organisation, have offered a $1 million prize to the first organisation to create and make a profit from meat grown in the lab instead of an animal and then sold in just four years. By June 30th, 2012, chicken meat grown without a chicken that has the taste and texture of real chicken must be sold to the public and be grown in large amounts and distributed widely to win the prize. Peter says it will assemble a judge of 10 people to sample any in vitro meat submissions by taste and texture. 
The fake chicken will be prepared using a vegetarian chicken recipe and must score an 80 out of a possible 100 with the judges. Peter members who hate the idea of eating any animal flesh, even when it's several years past hurting an animal, are horrified. They've pointed out that while the final product will no longer require animals to be killed, a very large number of animals will be sacrificed to develop the product. It may be that this is another application for stem cells. The limiting cost is liquid nutrient growth medium, which according to a study presented at the In Vitro Meat Symposium in Norway, needs to come down in price about 2,000 times before it starts to be competitive with real chicken. And if you can't tell whether it's real chicken or not, then it may just be cheaper to substitute the real chook for the fake. A Denmark-based manufacturer, Agroblast, plans to make plastic dinnerware from pig's urine. The company has been able to convert urea, a compound of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen and hydrogen, into plastic. Other animal waste products like manure can be inserted into the system, but pig urine is particularly interesting because it's an environmental hazard. This makes it enormously cheaper than other bioplastic feedstocks, like cornstarch. Pig urine has to be paid to be disposed, so it has a negative cost. This means that pig urine plastic could cost a third less than the price of plastic made from fossil fuels. Agroplast is starting a pilot study to find out. They report that their urea exploiting process could replace fossil fuels in other manufacturing areas, such as fertilisers, in hand lotion, and as a flavour enhancer in cigarettes. It can be used as a de-icer on roads instead of the environmentally destructive salt presently used, and in glue. There is no such thing as waste, just materials for which we haven't yet found a use. This week, Chris Rayberg takes a look at a number of Australian mammals living on the edge of extinction. In the past 200 years, Australia has pushed 27 mammal species into oblivion. That's nearly half of all mammals to become extinct worldwide in the past 500 years. In the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at mammals which might have survived extinction. This week, let's take a look at some Australian mammals which have defied expectation and turned up alive after all hope was just about lost. The first story comes from a couple of decades back and is about a wallaby that spent time on the extinction list, named the bridled nail-tail wallaby. These are gorgeous little animals with splashes of rusty red, black and white across their shoulders, hence the name bridled, and splashes of black and white along their muzzle. As cats and foxes made their way across the continent, bridled nail-tail wallaby numbers were decimated. At the time, the last confirmed sighting was made in 1937. However, purely by chance, tiny surviving colonies of the species did persist undetected for another 36 years. Their rediscovery is every bit as fascinating as the animals themselves. In 1973, Woman's Day magazine ran an article about Australia's rare and extinct mammals. A fencing contractor working on a property in central Queensland had read the article and recognised the small wallabies hopping about on the property as being the presumed extinct bridal nail-tails. His report was followed up and confirmed by researchers, and the bridal nail-tail was back from extinction after 36 years. Although once common in New South Wales, these critters are still listed as extinct in the wild in that state. But if you'd like to meet some of these beautiful macropods, 
then head to the 65,000 hectare feral free Scotia Sanctuary in western New South Wales. Another feral proofed sanctuary which appears in the conservation history of another species of wallaby is Mount Rothwell, west of Melbourne in Victoria. The brush-tailed rock wallabies range extends along the Great Dividing Range from Queensland to northern Victoria, however its numbers have dropped dramatically throughout the southern extent of its range. In 2002, an estimated five individual wallabies of this southern subgroup were left in Victoria. Enter Sir George Grey, born 1812, twice Governor of New Zealand, once Governor of South Africa and once Governor of South Australia. During his 25-year ownership of the island of Kawao in New Zealand, he introduced a number of exotic species there, including members of the southern subgroup of the brush-tailed rock wallaby. In 2003, a number of brush-tailed rock wallabies were repatriated into Australia from New Zealand. Mount Rothwell Sanctuary received about six, and these have now bred up to a population of about 30. Mount Rothwell continues to work with species on the brink of extinction, being the most significant recovery program in Victoria for the Eastern Barred Bandicoot. Thanks to the efforts of sanctuaries such as this one and armies of volunteers across the country, species like these are hanging on, with a glimmer of hope. There is a third species of wallaby which has also teetered closely on the brink of extin extinction, the Palmer wallaby. It is the smallest species in its genus and although discovered in the 1840s, it has always been considered rare. It was known from southern New South Wales but was considered extinct by the late 1800s. Back in New Zealand, Sir George Grey also introduced the very common Tamar wallaby. These had multiplied so successfully that in 1965 efforts were made to control the plague. Workers involved were soon astonished, however, to discover that Palmer wallabies were living alongside the pest Tamar wallabies. The cull was put on hold and Palmer wallabies were sent to Australia and around the world to begin breeding programs. Here was a sizeable animal that had been presumed extinct for over 65 years, quietly persisting in a relatively remote corner of the world. Is there hope that Australia may yet harbour marsupial species which have been presumed extinct for decades? The Palmer wallaby story is not over. Two years after their rediscovery in New Zealand, they were once again discovered living in the wild in New South Wales, near Gosford, less than 100 kilometres from Sydney. Surely no Australian species could have been thought more doomed than the enigmatic Gilbert's potteroo, the world's most endangered marsupial. Gilbert's potteroo is a rabbit-sized rat kangaroo and was discovered in 1840 in Western Australia by John Gilbert. The next European sighting was 26 years later and the last confirmed reports between 1874 and 1879. In the late 1970s, a thorough search was conducted, but despite appeals to the public and trapping efforts, no Gilbert's potteroos were forthcoming, and it seemed the species truly was doomed to extinction with nothing but old sightings reports to suggest they had survived. In late 1994, PhD student Elizabeth Sinclair was studying the population genetics of quokkas in Two People's Bay Nature Reserve. After six days of unsuccessful trapping, they finally found one trap occupied by an animal that resembled a baby quokka. Its ear was clipped and then it was released, but the next morning two similar animals were trapped, a male and a larger female. Quoting directly from the Gilbert's Potteroo Action Group website, now there were small and large animals looking the same as the animal captured on the previous morning, and it was decided that they were not in fact quokkas. Their fur was much too soft for them to be bandicoots, and so they were taken back to the reserve research station for closer examination. Elizabeth and Adrian conferred with Lee Wisson and Alan Danks 
and by a process of elimination using mammal identification books, the four of them began to realise that the animals fitted the description of Gilbert's potteroo, last officially recorded in 1879. The rediscovery of Gilbert's potteroo after a 115-year absence was described as Sinclair's discovery of a lifetime. Lastly, let's take a look at the Tasmanian tiger's little cousin, the eastern quoll. Quolls are, in my opinion, this nation's most underrated native marsupial. Australia has four species of quoll, and the eastern comes in both fawn and less commonly black forms, and all quolls have white spots. For over 150 years, European settlers called them native cats, and Mount Rothwell Sanctuary's manager Paul Mervyn describes them as intelligent and affectionate and easily domesticated. Despite these virtues, quolls were almost immediately subjected to persecution by European settlers. Being carnivorous, they preyed upon farmyard chickens, although eastern quolls more commonly eat rodents and insects. All over mainland Australia, eastern quoll numbers declined rapidly in the first half of the 20th century. They had disappeared from Victoria by the late 1950s, and by the early 1960s were to be found in only a few places in New South Wales. One of their strongholds was right in the middle of Sydney, at Nielsen Park in Vaucluse. Here, a small population of eastern quolls persisted until 1963, when a female was discovered as roadkill. Although this is the last official record of the species on the mainland, I have it on third-hand account that a woman continued to feed native cats on her property south of Nielsen Park until the 1970s. Unconfirmed sightings of the species have persisted since 1963, with the two most recent being in December 2006. Two different people sighted eastern quolls on the northern outskirts of Sydney. In the first instance, Nicole Palmer saw an adult and juvenile on the road in front of her vehicle, and in the second, a wildlife worker of 20 years watched a quoll for some five minutes that he discovered while spotlighting at night. The difficulty with eastern quoll sightings is that they look very similar to the larger spotted-tailed quoll. However, in these two cases, the witnesses both examined photographs of both species before insisting the animal they saw was the eastern. Could the native marsupial cat still be prowling around in the bush outside Sydney? Gilbert's potteroo shows us that small mammals can persist undetected for over 100 years, and the many wallaby rediscoveries show that even larger animals can escape human detection. In April of this year, I deployed the first of three cameras in search of eastern quolls on the basis of the 2006 sightings. With all quoll species requiring management for their conservation, I invite all listeners to contact me with any quoll sighting report, no matter how old or which species. You never know, your quoll sighting might be the rediscovery of a lifetime. That was Chris Rayberg from Where Light Meets Dark. Chris can be contacted at wherelightmeetsdark.com. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2ser.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. This is ponderous, man. Really ponderous. one day and nobody remembered who I was so I decided to take the day off on my way out I run into my boss and he says hey you look familiar I said thanks people say that a lot in these dreams and the horns kicked in and my shoes started to squeak 
Then all of a sudden, I'm standing on a beach in some tropical part of the world, and there's a sign that says, "Aren't you supposed to be at work?" <laughs> sort of screamed out at me. I remember, I'd been here in other dreams. Usually there was a water polo game, and a girl who could talk with her eyes, and she'd say, "Can you see what I'm saying?" And the horns kicked in, and my shoes started to squeak. Before I knew it, I was walking near a lake when a phone rings, and the operator speaks to me in a language I don't understand. Then the horns kicked in. My shoes started to squeak. Before long, I was coming up on this really weird part of my dream. You know, part where I know how to tap dance, but I can only do it while wearing golf shoes. Back on the beach, walking with this girl who talks with her eyes. This time she says, "I think you see what I'm saying." Then, just before I woke up, it started to rain in Southern California. Um, papa chaka makanano sing kao. Ting kapalala wana idamu ching pao. Heavy kapalua kamajana sing ki. Um, mama chaka mana wana is now free. Are you sure you're awake? Dream on. When asleep, most people have at some time experienced the sensation that they are falling down, 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 and then crash. They awake. But there are some people who are able to manipulate this experience to change it into something amazing. To get an idea of this, I'm going to try to take you through an exercise. See if you can take a moment and find a comfortable seat. Don't attempt this exercise if you're driving. Close your eyes. Imagine that you're in front of a building. This building is very tall, so tall that it must have hundreds of floors above you. Now, step into this building and go to the lift, pressing the button to summon the lift to your floor. You hop into the lift and select the button to go to the roof of the building, and the doors close. Boom. The lift arrives at the roof, and you step out. You go over to the edge and look at the view, but there are no railings, and as you peer over the building, you fall. You feel yourself falling down, down, down. At this point, make a conscious decision to spread your wings out and start flying upwards. You're free and soaring through the air. 
Feel the exhilaration of the wind flowing and rushing past your body. See the beautiful clear sky stretched out in front of you. Feel calmness flow over you. You're going to land. Sweep to the ground and take a deep breath. Now, slowly open your eyes and look around you. I've heard this described as one of the greatest feelings people have experienced. Whether or not you're able to fulfill this visualisation, hopefully this gives you a picture of what some people, termed lucid dreamers, are able to do with their dreams. As it happens, most people, that is 60% of people, will have had at least one lucid dream in their lifetimes, according to research done by psychologist Jane Gackenbach. So, they will be able to reason about their dream situations and access some of their memories. Occasional lucid dreamers usually won't have the same amount of control in their dreams as frequent lucid dreamers. Occasional lucid dreamers may be aware that they are dreaming, but still be able to manipulate very little of what they do or what happens in the dream. Frequent lucid dreamers, on the other hand, usually exercise more control over the dreams when they become lucid. The most fully aware lucid dreamers are able to wake up in their dreams and control them. Within their dreams, they can chat with dream characters, win their battle against the boogie monster, drive a Ferrari, or just have sex. One of the issues with studying lucid dreaming, and thus learning more about it, is that dreams are personal experiences that can only be given as first-person accounts. So it's hard to objectively and scientifically study them. This has led some people, including physician Alfred Morey and philosopher Daniel Dennett, to conclude that we mightn't actually dream at all. They suggest that dreams are just stories downloaded into our head right before we wake, that we mistakenly believe we experience during the night. Lucid dreamers have offered a way to help study this claim and further explore our experiences of dreams. In the late 1970s, Keith Hearn, Alan Worsley and Stephen LeBerge started this research. They found that lucid dreamers, although unable to move most of their body, were able to make conscious eye movements or clench their fist while they were lucidly dreaming. These dreamers were thus able to communicate with outside observers at the time of their lucid dreams. One experiment utilising this was conducted by LeBerge. He asked lucid dreamers to make a signal, which could be eye movements or a clenched fist for example, when they had a lucid dream. In the morning, when the lucid dreamers woke, they were asked whether they made a signal the night before. The signals made in the night were independently verified. The experiment found that the night signals made by the lucid dreamers correlated with their reports the following morning that they had made the signal and had a lucid dream. If these dreamers were able to physically signal during the night, it suggests that they are aware enough to determine what they are experiencing. Furthermore, the reports in the morning that correlate with what happened in the night reinforce the legitimacy of the lucid dreamers' experiences. Lucid dreaming has also helped us to understand our sense of timing in lucid dreams. LeBerge asks subjects to signal with their eyes every 10 seconds while experiencing a lucid dream and found that the subject's sense of timing was similar when they were lucidly dreaming to when they were awake. At both times, they estimated 10 seconds, 
to be what was really about 13 seconds. There are ways to increase your likelihood of having a lucid dream. One way is to use brain training devices, constantly reminding yourself that when you are dreaming, you wish to remember that you are dreaming, and constantly getting into the habit of asking yourself if you are dreaming. Another way is to utilise machines that have been created especially to encourage lucid dreaming. These machines detect periods of REM sleep, which is when most lucid dreaming seems to occur. The machines then give a signal to the dreamer at those periods of REM sleep. Hearn had his machine give a signal in the form of a mild electric shock. Leberge's machine gives a signal in the form of flashing lights and beeps. These machines give the best results when used in conjunction with mind training, so the signals prompt you to ask whether you are dreaming. Experienced meditators also have more success with having and controlling lucid dreams compared to people in the general population. Alternatively, for those of you who want to try to have a lucid dream but don't have the patience or wherewithal to try the techniques I've listed, there may be another way. Hearn has found that having a particularly emotional or stressful day is more likely to precede you having a lucid dream that night. So, I suppose you could quit your job, wrestle a crocodile, or tell your partner or mother that you forgot their birthday. I accept no liability for anything that may result or not result from trying this method. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, suggestions, or wild and passionate praise, then send email to diffusion at 2ser.com. That's diffusion at 2ser.com. Or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program with Chris Rayberg, Ian Wolfe, and yours truly, Amy Bullen. Diffusion has been produced and panelled by Ian Wolfe in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Amy Bullen. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. <laughs> in your food That's what the textbooks say But you can't be subdued Until the next meal You've got some ribose and a few carbonyls And you're going to take a break from your normal routine You're building a histidine And you won't give up on the synthesis Though it's not going well The R group buffers you Cause it has the perfect PKA 
Can you really create it without thermodynamics getting in the way? It's not difficult to form these amino acids. You're so clueless, maybe.